This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a mindful and marvelous life. Two quick things today. First of all, I sent out an email with a link to Amazon's special sale on the Instant Pot, and a bunch of you took me up on it. I'm so glad. And it occurred to me after talking to a couple of people that there's a learning curve, and it's such an easy implement to use. I swear I use it at least once or twice a day. Um, I'm thinking of making a series of really short videos just to help you get it out of the box and to make your first stew or soup or pot of beans or rice or whatever. Um, If you're interested in that, you can drop me a note in the comment section of today's podcast, which is plantyourself.com slash 230, 230 episodes. Let me know if there's enough interest. I'll put together those videos. Otherwise, I won't bother. Second thing, um, on Patreon, I'm happy to announce I'm almost at $400 a month, which is just blowing my mind. It's so amazing. And I got thinking about what that means to me to be able to produce this podcast without needing uh, sponsorship from big companies, you know, the way most podcasts do it. I was watching a clip on a TV show called The Doctors, and they had the guy, I think Stephen Gundry, who wrote a book, uh, The Plant Paradox, about how evil plants are and how dangerous. And they had a a rebuttal by one of our podcast guests and one of my uh, favorite plant-based people, Dr. Joel Kahn, who was brilliant in his rebuttal. And in fact, I'll put that uh, video in the show notes for today. Again, plantyourself.com slash 230. And what got me was at the end, one of the doctors said, well, you know, I kind of agree with Dr. Khan, but everyone has to make up their own mind and we're all different. And he really totally waffled. And it occurred to me, and and I've heard from other people, that he really is very sympathetic to Dr. Khan's evidence. But he said, you know, it's basically, in my humble opinion, he was really walking away from the evidence. And it's because they're a TV show and they have big sponsors and they can't afford to piss them off. And I love not having to worry about who I piss off. You'll see in the next couple of weeks, I've got some uh, guests who are going to be really controversial. And I know people are going to listen to them and unsubscribe and get angry and feel challenged and threatened. And because of the financial model of this podcast, which so far has just been me paying for everything with my time, with hosting, with equipment, and now crowdsourcing the support so that I can uh, take it to the next level, do more with it, and to make it sustainable so it doesn't depend on how well the rest of my business is going and it's not affected by any of those decisions or outcomes. So if the independence that this affords this podcast is important to you, to know that you're getting unvarnished facts, that I'm not beholden to big corporate interests, that I'm working for you, then I would urge you to go to patreon.com slash plant yourself and make a contribution. Help us out so that I don't have to worry about who I offend and you don't have to worry about what kind of filters or censorship I'm putting on it just because I've got to make a buck and keep the lights on. All right, that's all for that. Now let's get to today's show. My guest is Lanny Mulrath. She's a good friend of the podcast, a good friend of mine. She's, this is her third time on the show, and she is a prolific thinker, teacher, and writer. And also she's a great friend to elephants, as you'll see if you go and look at her picture on today's 
show notes at plantyourself.com slash 230. She's got a new book, The Mindful Vegan, a 30-day plan for finding health, balance, peace, and happiness. And it covers the third of her three pillars of a healthy lifestyle. Her first book was physical act- around physical activity, Fit Quickies. Her second book, The Plant-Based Journey, was about a whole food plant-based diet. And now she's talking about mindfulness. And I conducted this interview differently from most I've done because I've been wrestling with mindfulness practices for the past several months. It's, it's kind of been my personal theme for the year. And I've had a lot of breakthroughs, and I've also had a lot of confusion as I've navigated meditation, mindful eating, and bringing you know, just garden variety awareness to the moments of my life. So I spent a lot of the time in the interview in earnest, honest conversation with Lanny about my experiences and what to make of them. And I'm hoping that at least some of this will have appeal and value beyond the space between my own ears. So without further ado, Lanny Mulrath, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. I'm really pleased to be here and spend some more time with you. Yeah, let's let's jump right in. First time we talked about fit quickies. Second time we yeah. talked about the plant based journey. I, every time you write a book, I got to have you back on the podcast yeah. because these are these are the the tools that that I use and I recommend, and I think the world is so much better for. So tell us about the title of your latest book. Uh, the Mindful Vegan, well, the full title, as you know, is it's a 30-day plan for finding health, balance, peace, and happiness because I want it really clear that this is a 30-day plan. A lot of people talk about mindfulness. It's kind of hot topic now, as you know. So what I like to do is I bring it down to earth into a pragmatic step-by-step program, and I want people to be able to try on these practices to see how much of a fit it is for them because it's been so instrumental for me in well-being. So the 30-day idea I want really clear from the outset. And the other part of it is, I don't know if you've read any mindful eating books. Have you read any of those? Yeah, usually while What's eating. about mindful? Yeah, well, oh. <laughs> well it, I have not come across a one that included a vegan, plant-based, healthy, whole food approach to what's on your plate. And to me, the very first step of mindful eating should be, well, where did this thing that I'm eating come from? You know, what is the source of this? And how is it mindfully feeding my body, the planet, and care for all? So when you don't include that piece, I think there's a big piece in mindfulness missing. Did that ever occur to you? <laughs> I <laughs> not not in that not in those words, but it mm-hmm. did occur to me. I remember one you know a book that had a huge impact on my thinking and almost no impact on my action was a book uh, called The Slowdown Diet. Oh yeah, I think I've read that. Mark somebody. Yeah, Mark yeah. David. I think. Yes. Yes. And I slow you down, huh? <laughs> it, it just made me feel bad after each meal where yes. I didn't slow down. But I mean, it, that's nothing against the book. It was a fantastic yes. book with, with really yes. interesting research and, a, and a beautifully argued. And yet, you know, it kind of bothered me that everything came down to how your body felt after eating. And for Mm -hmm. people who maybe have been doing practicing mindfulness or practicing a clean plant-based diet for decades, maybe you can do that kind of discernment. Mm -hmm. 
but to ask someone to just suddenly decide yes. to pay attention and, yes. and, oh, this is good for me. It, it, it didn't make sense. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the, to kind of wrap up this particular question, even though I know it's going to weave itself throughout our conversation. This is precisely besides the fact that mindful eating books really aren't addressing so much what's on your plate. It's more like, you know, gosh, if I feel like and crave a burger, I'll just eat it slowly and enjoy it till I'm full, which to me misses a major component of mindful eating. But this idea of even the rule about chew 32 times or chew 500 times, the slow down idea without a bigger context or a practice to go with it or how to actually navigate our historical way of eating or relationship with food doesn't go anywhere. And that's why those books didn't help me either. It just didn't connect with really making a difference for me. It didn't deal with the disquieting states, deal with uh, nervous energy, didn't uh, carry over to eating and food problems or my relationship with food eating in my body, which mindfulness practice has really made a difference in. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, and I'm um, one of them, who was I was able to handle the what of the food pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Like, I decided I wasn't going to have dairy anymore, and it wasn't the kind of, you know, back and forth, push-pull that I hear from some people. And I think a lot of people are like that. We We decide, okay, you know, no more meat, okay, um, giving up recreational sugar, what, whatever those things are, at a certain point, we make that decision, and it's a decision, and it's done. But the thing I could never make that kind of decision around was the quantities I was eating, the speed at which I was eating, and the amount I was putting in my mouth at one time. Mm-hmm. Those, that just, and, I would, and I would try so every so often I would go, okay, well, I'm going to do this mindfully. And I would sit down and try to like make my lunch last 10 minutes instead of 18 seconds. And it would feel like torture. Like the, <laughs> I would do it. And the lesson yeah. I would get was that was really unpleasant. Yeah. Um, well, here we are. It's also either eating till we're over, over full or rushing through or eating. Those are symptomatic. And to attack them through simply the behavior does not get under the under the surface of those behaviors, which makes it impossible to change. It's like trying on something artificial. It's like a diet. Hmm. I never, I never thought of that before, that this is, that's the equivalent. Because it just seemed like, you know, eating slowly was like a virtue, like something that somebody who was enlightened would do. Yeah, but and how do you do that? How do you, th- its point is, how do you do that? Which is what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So before before we get to the good stuff, I'm really curious how you <laughs> decided to write this book and to write it now. Well, as you mentioned the my first two books, you mentioned the Fit Quickies and the Plant Based Journey, and anyone who's spend any time with me at all knows that there are three pillars to my approach to this healthy, happy living situation. And that includes some kind of activity, physical movement, not only for physical fitness, but for your brain, that it includes uh, primarily a whole food, plant-based and vegan diet, and that it includes some degree of mastery over your habits of thinking and reactivity. So what we have now 
Howard, is a trilogy. I've got all three of them now have their own book. So, <laughs> it, so even in the Fit Quickies book, when I was approached by Penguin Publishing to write that book, they, they wanted to feature the, are my five-minute exercises. And I said, well, that's fine, but I wasn't going to say no. But I said, it has to also include plant-based nutrition and also this mindset element that all three of these are essential or it's not an honest presentation of what it takes. So luckily they were all over that. And then it came time to focus more on the food and the plant-based journey came along. And the same thing happened in this book. While most of that book is about transition to plant-based nutrition, it also, as you know, has the key supporting players, which are physical activity and getting some degree of mastery over your habits of thinking. So now it's time to focus and shine a light on door number three, which is actually the most important because as you just stated through your own personal experience, you can know all the right things about the food, all the right things about the fitness. But unless we get beneath the surface on some of our habits of reactivity or automaticity, the way that we do things, whether it's reacting in a conversation or plowing through a plate without really being connected to our hunger and fullness signals as well as we'd like to be, there's it's not going to happen. So this right. this gets a chance to bring forward and I talk about mindfulness meditation practice in my other books like it's 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 mentioned because I to go into that it takes a whole a whole book which is now what we have so what's your personal journey with mindfulness I know from from your presentations and previous books and our conversations that at one point I guess you were like a mindless vegetarian could say (laughs) so You've 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 gone on the journey yourself. What first clued you in that mindfulness was important? Maybe how how was it shown to be lacking in your life, and what did you do? What did you do to get it? Oh, all right. Well, this and I do explain quite a bit in the introduction of the mindful vegan. I go into depth in my history here, so I will refer to that story and with a little less depth because it is a whole part of the book. But what happened is I started meditating and becoming vegetarian like 45 years ago. That happened at the same time because the meditation practice that I was undertaking also said, well, we're going to eat vegetarian because of ahimsa, which is nonviolence, the moral consideration of taking other lives. However, dairy was still on the plate. Go figure. Now that what we know, all the horrors of the dairy industry, how can that be on a harmless plate, correct? But that was where I got started. And as you know from our conversations, Howard, I've had a long time struggle with food and weight and eating. That goes back to, you know, junior high just constantly thinking I was pudgy, whether I was or not, going on some kind of food regimen, losing weight, gaining weight, and just kind of bouncing my way up higher and higher in my weight without really getting any kind of peace of mind or better relationship with my body, with food, or with eating. So I hoped secretly that this meditation practice and this vegetarian diet, we're going to make the problem go away and make the weight melt off. So I must admit that even though I was all, you know, 70 spiritual about it, there was that part of me that thought this is going to fix the problem. And actually didn't, because as we know, a vegetarian diet is any way of eating. You can uh, eat your way through all kinds of wonderful things that aren't really connecting you with your your natural hunger and fullness signals and it, 
encouraging your body to be its own naturally healthy weight, which by the way is my preference. Rather than talking about weight loss, I like to talk about finding your naturally healthy weight. So I embarked on this journey and it really didn't make a difference, even though for the meditation, I practice this method for like about 10 years. It was like a mantra kind of meditation. And for those who may not know, it means like a repeating word phrase to kind of bring your attention in and, and quiet your mind a little bit. But it didn't make a difference in my food so and was, eating was this behaviors. Like the, the TM tradition? No, uh, it wasn't TM. It was with another teacher. And I actually traveled to India several times and spent weeks at ashrams and, you know, got up at three in the morning and meditated for hours and so this was this was like serious. This this yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I thought it was serious, and and I I learned how to be still and kind of got some degree of concentration, but it really didn't give me changes in my behaviors. It didn't bring me that quiet and peace of mind that I wanted. It didn't improve my relationship with food and eating. It just it didn't pan out. So. I was traveling and came across, Greg and I, I think we were in the San Juan Islands on our bikes in Washington, and I found in this little bookstore, it was a book about mindfulness meditation, about Vipassana meditation, which is the kind that I teach in through the Mindful Vegan, and it just, everything about it appealed to me, but it didn't give instruction. And this was before we had Google. It was before we had, you know, all you could you go to the library and look through the card catalog or go to a bookstore. But it was harder to find an instructional book. But I kept, I kept the book close because the idea of getting beneath your disquieting states that then show up in the rest of your life, in your relationships with people, your work, your life, your food, and your eating, all of those things. And finally, I found a place uh, that. I went to a retreat. It was in Yosemite, near Yosemite National Park, and it was a 10-day retreat that taught this method. And this was a silent retreat, and I think that I may have told you about this before. I can't quite recall, but yeah, 10 days of silence. So you actually not only don't you speak with others, you don't write, you don't read, you don't – the idea is it's you and your body and your thoughts, and enjoy that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's a whole, you just, then you, all this stuff starts to reveal itself to you that you were just usually distracted from. But this was a linchpin for me because it was during that time and my chapter in the Mindful Vegan is called My Watershed Moment, which happened about day four of that retreat is I go into it in depth. And I became aware during that time of how much tension there was between me and food, me and eating and me in my body. And it was an insight that wasn't just an intellectual, oh, there's something wrong with this relationship. It was like, how sad. I've been carrying this for so long. What is this tension? Because it, through this mindfulness practice, as I instruct in the Mindful Vegan, you become familiar with the patterns of your thought, but you also become connected with the physical sensations in your body, which give you so much information about what's going in your, on in your life. We all know what anger feels like, what excitement feels like, what when we don't want to talk to someone and get away, that impatient feels like. But how can we use those physical sensations to actually navigate a new way to live more skillfully? And that's what right. mindfulness meditation practice teaches. So from that point on, and I was I never qualified for an official eating disorder. And I have, by the way, I do have my opinions on the scales out there about that, which maybe that'll come up later in a conversation 
meditation or not. I do address it in the Mindful Vegan a little bit. But uh, through the rest of that, see, I'm now I've, as mindfully as I'm speaking, my train ran away, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, <'cause> you're <laughs> because still, you're, you're still here on the station. Oh. The trains, trains come and go, right? That's right. And I use that allegory in the book, as you know, like your thoughts come along like a train on the station. I know. I, che- I cheated. I read the book. <laughs> Uh, anyway, this made a huge – oh, I know where I was going with that. Even though I didn't qualify for an official eating disorder, I could uh, overeat and drive around town eating bags of M&Ms with the best of them. So ever since that point in time, that that tendency to just keep stuffing food in beyond comfort never happened again. And this has been, what, 25 years now? It just – because of the skills I learned and the insights gained. And this is how this pers- this particular practice can deliver to you. So this has now been 25 years that I've been practicing this. And I have been teaching this a- along the way, probably the last uh, 10 years uh, or 10 to 15 years of my, my coaching practice and with students. But now is the time that I can bring it to a bigger stage because I wanted to be able to have a book to hand to people, not just here's a few lessons, I'll teach you this. I wanted some people to have something so they could walk away with it and dive in deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because we and, and as you said, you, you created a plan, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not just a book of concepts, but um, something that, you know, a tool that, that people can actually use. And what I, what I wanted to say about when, when you were talking about sort of becoming familiar with body sensations and emotions. So I feel like for many years, my awareness of my sensations and emotions was, was basically um, like that 30 cent watercolor kit from the five and dime. It had like, you know, the primary colors and white and black Mm -hmm. and, and green. And for a long time, every emotion that I had seemed to be some version of hunger. <laughs> and for in, my, in my own experience of, of practicing sort of awareness of body sensation, I bec- I've learned to distinguish. So now, you know, maybe I have one of those um, 64 cr- crayon boxes from Crayola, right? I have much more, uh, much more variety to choose from and therefore... I can paint much more skillful pictures of my reality to myself and then act more appropriately. Wow, that sounds very interesting. But I wanted to ask you on your, your language when you said the emotions were some variation or some version of hunger. Does that mean that – what exactly does that mean, that you would, you would find yourself responding to an emotional experience by eating something? Or what does yeah. that mean? Okay. Yeah, that, that – that, Whatever emotion was going through me, if it was some, you know any sort of negative emotion, obviously I don't want to sit with it. Like you know, you, you talked about sitting with your thoughts in your body for ten mm-hmm. days. Like I'd rather sit in a cage with a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> what's the key to the cage? For me, it was always something yummy to eat. Yeah, Just took my mind took my mind right off whatever it was, and in the moment, it totally solved the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was my experience too, but it didn't have to just be anything that was negative, anything that was unsettling or disquieting, even excitement or happiness. There was plenty of any reason 
All those create their own kind of, even really being excited about something and happy is kind of its own little kind of discomfort. You know, there's a little tension there and anxiety. And how do I deal with that? Well, let's eat something. Just quiet that down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's a a form of tranquilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting because the way you described your mantra meditation is it sounds like it was sort of the same thing. It was a way to tranquilize a sort of disturbed ego. Hmm, I don't. I, I don't know. I I never quite thought of it that way. It was just a kind of. It was presented as a tool for quieting the mind, which I now think is the mind's job is to be active, and we can learn how to navigate that more skillfully and kind of not in, identify with everything that comes across our mind as really us and run with it there are different ways to deal with it but mantra meditation which for some people find very very much a solution for them and i think that there are many paths to awakening and if someone finds that is giving them health and happiness and peace in their life by all means it did not do that for me because it didn't help me navigate once I was, you know, off off the meditation pad or moving through the rest of life. It didn't give me tools of transfer. I didn't mm-hmm. didn't find a connection there. Right. So may, maybe we should step back for a second and define mindful and mindfulness. Yes. And I, and I'll, I'll ask you to give sort of the generic definition, yes. and, and then I'm going to jump in with my own particular problem around it and see if you can help me. And it's this is you know this isn't like a an interview trick sort of question, but this is like re- really not understanding something deep about it in my own experience. But why don't we start with the basics? Yeah, like, well, what that, do you mean by that's mindful? Good. Well, there's a couple of things, and I do have a very concise definition that I, I use that really hits the nail. But uh, before I do that, I want to first demystify the term mindfulness. Uh, people tend to think that means, well, it sounds like kind of like you're full of your mind. But actually what it means is that you're fully attentive, mentally fully attentive to whatever it is you are currently engaged in. So you bring your engagement into the present moment, which is the only one we really have, you know, the one that's right here. And we can talk about wandering mind. We'll go there after it, it, we can go there in a, in a couple of minutes, but you asked for my definition and I don't have a generic. I just have mind, mind, <laughs> mind. I just have mind, which is mindfulness is a specific form of mental training and a particular kind of attention that you bring to your daily activities. Now together, these lead to reductions in reactivity which is automaticity, automatic habitual behaviors. And it also leads to a cultivation of positive brain states, which, by the way, are endogenous to us. We have them. Peace, equanimity, happiness, living at ease. They're already with us, which is we've all touched upon them, but we've managed to heap it all over with all this other stuff that's going on in our world and in our lives and in our minds. So that's my... uh, definition. Mm. And, and to, the idea of endogenous, I think, you know, it sounds like sort of a 50 cent word, but it's really profound in that you're saying we don't have to go somewhere else for it. We don't have to add things in to get it. It's, it's the baseline and we just have to get back to it. 
That's exactly right. It's a, a connectivity that we already have. And I don't know if you've gotten to the place in the Mindful Vegan book yet. On day 30 is my interview with Dr. Dean Ornish. And I was very honored to have, I went to his offices in Sausalito and spent quite a bit of time with him. I did not know before that he started meditating back in the 70s, about the same time I did. And it was really the foundation of so much of his own personal life and his program for heart disease reversal. Because as you know, he, Dr. Ornish doesn't just do the food. He also does exercise, stress reduction, meditation, all of these things that it's a holistic approach, which is mine as well. And he keeps kept underscoring during our conversation. He said, I'm so glad you're teaching a book on meditation, and I'm so glad you are reinforcing to people that this ease of living, this peace of mind and happiness is not something to go out and find outside of ourselves, even though that's what we're all doing, right? I'll do this, lose this weight, I'll get this thing, I'll have this experience, bringing ourselves happiness. It's all there within us, and it simply needs to be uncovered and proliferated mm, it's it's beautiful so let's talk a little bit about automaticity because you kind of paint automaticity as a or in reactivity as kind of the, the central problem at least around the topic of food you know vegans behaving badly <laughs> pe- pe- people you know getting into into fights that they vowed they wouldn't get into you know, getting baited by Uncle David Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. And you even, you know, you beaut- write so beautifully. I've got to oh, say, thank you, you know, thank you. Your, your writing's always been good, but you took it up a notch mm. for, this is linguistically for, for this book. And you begin oh. by talking about the search for like the mysterious ninth planet. <gasps> oh, did that... you like that? I did. Wow. So, so it's like, it's like this, there's this invisible gravitational force that we don't even recognize what, what do you mean by reactivity, automaticity, and why is it such a problem? Mm. By the way, that Ninth Planet story, just I was driving one day and on NPR, the story came up about this planet that hasn't been found, but we know it's there. Scientists know it's there. Astronomers know it's there because of the behavior of all these objects around it. And I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly we, th- we see these things in our lives, our behaviors, our relationships, things that trouble us, and we try to th- see if we can deal with them on their own and make them go away. But it's because it's a reflection of what we have been kind of reacting to and creating all along the way that keeps those debris you know, our, the, the debris of our life, the things that cause us pain and misery in place. So back directly to the question of reactivity. Everyone listening, I'm sure, can think of uh, maybe one person in their life right now or in the past who you always have a reaction to that isn't necessarily a pleasant experience. It may be a parent, it may be a sibling, it may be a coworker, and you've developed this relationship with them that even when they walk in the room, you're poised for, oh, I know, you know what they're going to say, I know where they're coming from. That's one kind of reactivity. So there's an um, immediate and a negative reaction. Reactions can be positive too. But they all have a way of managing us beyond a way that's maybe our most skillful way to respond 
instead of react. So we all know the difference between respond and react, right? Does that make sense? Well, response in involves choice. Exactly, which we do have. But because we are so bound in reactivity, we miss the point that there is a gap in which you can make a choice. And I opened the Mindful Vegan with that quote from Viktor Frankl that says, between, re between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, there is a place where we can choose. And in that space lies our freedom. And this perfectly underscores the skills that mindfulness practices teaches you. It opens up that little space a little bit so you can inhabit it and not be so quick to fly off the handle, eat mindlessly, put something in your mouth, uh, go into road rage when you're stuck in traffic. All those little ways that you start to see more and more subtle ways that they show up. And they don't have to be big, blatant behaviors. Reactivity can also be an inner tightening, an inner clutching. For example, the emotion of anger. We know that shows up in our body, right? For most people, there's a, a tension in the throat, a, a kind of tightening in the gut, maybe tension in the shoulders and face. But you start to see more and more subtle levels at which these forms of reactivity show up. You start to see how this is really creating misery within you, and you start to learn how to open up the space so you can live more skillfully either with your yourself or with those around you or life around you. So is that a and, little and, bit and, more helpful on reactivity? Yeah, and it sounds like when you get that ability to, to, to discern the, the, uh, the subtler manifestations, you get to nip it in the bud before you're in a full-blown amygdala hijack swinging things at people, right? When you, when you notice, oh, there's a little tension in my belly, that's, that's like mild annoyance, and I know where that goes if I feed it. Yes. At the same time, what's really nice about the mindfulness practice is you are not relying on a your willpower or your your tendency, as you said, to nip things in the bud, it's not, it does that, but in a whole unique way. In other words, instead of trying to push away an experience, say, I don't want to go there, I shouldn't feel that, in which case, by the way, we're building more reactivity because we're judging ourselves and building up shame and blame, and that's what you're practicing. So whatever you practice grows stronger, correct? So what we want to do is practice being present with, first, being aware I am feeling a, there's something going on that's uh, a reactivity that is not going to give us the best response here, whether it's lashing out at someone or eating mindlessly. Those are just two quick examples that come to mind. So instead of having becoming completely enlightened so that you float through life without these things bothering you, give up that fantasy. That's not how mindfulness works. Mindfulness doesn't make you an um, elevated human being that nothing bothers you anymore. What it does is it gives you the skill so that you can encounter these things and without having to push them away, which is our usual way. And you and I both compared notes about eating as a way to, to kind of take refuge. I liked that analogy, taking refuge from these disquieting states. You learn to completely be present with them as they are, you're experiencing them, like your body starts giving you the messages of tension and anxiety, and it brings you right into the present, which, by the way, then opens up your ability to do everything 
more skillfully, whether it's having a conversation with someone or whether it's eating a meal. Let me give you a quick example. And I write about this in The Mindful Vegan too, because it really brings it home. When I came back from that 10-day silent retreat, the first people I encountered in my life were my parents who had picked me up at the airport. I was going to meet my husband, Greg, and we were going on a trip somewhere. So we all have patterns of reactivity with our parents. Now, maybe that's just me, but I tend to think that in speaking with people that this is not an uncommon thing. And no, I have, I've never, I've never heard of that. Oh, before. I think that's I'll have to just... explain that more to you then at another time. But I have especially a longstanding history with my father of just being really judgmental of him before he could say anything. I knew, you know, I wasn't going to like what he said. I think he kind of did the same thing to me. You know, we had this antagonistic as much as I love my father and, had good experiences. It was kind of like a point of contention. So as we sat down, we stopped at this cafe or something and got something to eat. And I had been so practiced for the previous 10 days of being present with whatever is going on right here and noticing what's happening in my body and seeing how I could maybe use that to help me skillfully navigate the situation. It sounds kind of, it might sound complex, but it's actually very quick and simple once you get in the the habit of doing this thing or in the practice of doing this, I should say. So I, my father started talking and I could feel the same things happening in my body of being that physical feeling of being ready to judge whatever he had to say. Can you relate to that? <laughs> Maybe you have other people in your life that you do <laughs> that with. But I, I, being aware of it, I could simply, my attention would be with watching it in my body and also that opened up my heart to my dad because it occurred to me, and this is how this practice worked, it starts to give you insights into things. And this may sound obvious to everyone else on the phone, but to me it was, a or on the podcast, but to me it was a revelation. What if I just listened to my father as if I didn't know him and I was being an interested person listening to a person talk to me? In other words, take all the old filters out of it, be aware of them, don't push them away, don't say I shouldn't feel like this about my dad or oh that's bad or you know nip it in the bud, just be present, watch the feelings and at the same time open to my dad. And we had the most pleasant time, the most pleasant meal I've ever had ever had for a long time because I simply navigated the situation more skillfully. I could still be aware of my reactivity. It wasn't gone away because I had become completely enlightened on my retreat. It just gave me tools for living that helped so much. Now, over the years, that was many years ago, but and I still had my points in contention with my father. But from that point on, our relationship changed because more and more I was able to move into that kind of spaciousness around reactivity and make a difference in relationship. So that, I think, is an illustration. Does that help? It does. And it, and it brings me, as I imagine myself in a similar situation at a meal with a parent after coming back from a meditation retreat, to the question that I wanted to ask about for myself, which is when I, I'll sit in meditation and I will follow the instructions and I'll follow my breath for example, and do it for 20 minutes. And I'll find myself ruminating or fantasizing and bring myself back to my breath. Mm -hmm. And then when I, at the end of the meditation, it's always something like, you know, take this awareness into the world with you, into your day. And I find like right now, I can either be talking to you or I can be aware of talking to you. And the moment I, I go into this 
this sort of awareness, it feels like I'm multitasking. So hmm. somehow, like, I'm imagining you at this diner with your dad and you're chewing your food and you're paying attention to the textures and you're having the conversation. And to me, that would be like doing 12 things at once, which feels like the opposite of mindfulness. Mm. So can you, can you help me navigate that? Yeah. You had two different things though. One was this feeling of watching what's going on while I'm having a conversation and then you brought the food into it. So there you did bring, do you want to deal with um, both of those separately or all at once? Well, I mean, it's my understanding of mindfulness is sort of just be aware of everything. So the more I'm aware of, you know, the the harder it is for me to attend skillfully. Mm, so if okay. I'm sitting, right, I'm sitting listening to you, talking to you, I've got the book open in front of me, I might want to flip through, I'm looking at the time uh, on, <laughs> well, on the recorder, I'm thinking about, I hope that my neighbor doesn't start uh, leaf blowing, and... If I just forget about, if I just go and be oh. a podcaster, like I can do a, t a reasonably good job. But the minute I sort of bring in this meta awareness of I am a person in a chair with a body and I'm talking to my friend Lanny and the universe is six billion years old, like I kind of feel like I lose my focus yeah. and my ability to engage with you. Well, as a podcaster right now, your job is to be mindful of all those things. You need all those things in your awareness. You need to be aware of the noise outside. You need to be aware of the time. And the fact that you have all of that going on is simply being mindful to the task that is in front of you. So if we bring it back to sitting with my parents at the table, when, when, there is a part of your, your thinking process that is able to be observant without feeling like you have to be removed from the present. When you bring the food process into it, this is why I really don't like to eat with a lot of conversation or people at the table because you, by nature, you cannot be as connected with your hunger and fullness signals. So I understand that when I'm in a, a social situation and simply like enjoy the food, but don't, I'm not compelled to feel like I have to feel the flavor and taste of every single bite because it's not necessarily appropriate to the situation. We want something that we can live with. But back to, again, my point is it's not my preference to eat that way because I really do love to eat and I love to enjoy it all. And when I'm talking to people, you kind of miss out on that a little bit. So the expectation, you're putting a lot of expectations on yourself to be empowered, to be able to have all <laughs> this stuff and be fully conscious and be as just kind of master of it all. It's actually a situation of first being kind to yourself, being uh, respectful of the fact that maybe you're learning your way through navigating how mindfulness actually fits for you and all these different things. And also understanding that being mindful of all these different components is essential. If you were a surgeon, right, you have to have all of your attention completely focused on the task at hand. I'm just bringing an example because it was in a conversation on a podcast I was on yesterday. So you would not expect that yourself had to also be connected with everything else that's going on, every single sound, every single internal feeling. You need to be focused on what you're doing, correct? In other words, mindfulness means my need to be fully present with what I'm doing. And this is how mindfulness practice then helps you in your work life because you learn that when you are on a task, 
that you need to be fully present with that. And since you've been practicing being fully present with your body and with your thoughts during your formal practice, then you can take it forward to you and be fully present with whatever it is you're doing, whether you're washing the dishes or doing heart surgery. That was kind of a long answer. So let me give this to you for a minute. Yeah, my, 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 I got a body sensation that I'm interpreting as this is like my shit and uh, I want to return to a more universally useful uh, conversation. I feel like I feel like I want to get on the phone with you afterwards and have the have the Howie chat. But, but you never uh, know how what your experience is is going to connect with someone. And I'm sure it has. So yeah, it's okay. All good. I'll, I'll I'll give it that. I also I also want to sort of aim for the <laughs> for the center of the fairway. Okay. Um, okay. Because the other because the other issue is like I have actually coincidentally or not in the past two weeks made a huge mindfulness breakthrough around my own eating. Um, in that for the past nine days, I have not overeaten. I've not stuffed my face. I've been sitting down to eat instead of like eating, you know, secret meals with the, with the wooden spoon as I cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels amazing and it feels liberating. And I've got, you know, this, um, this tremendous appreciation for what's only a nine day practice, but feels like it's a forever practice. And I would, I would love for you. And I, I, and I don't know how I got here exactly, but I would love for you to talk about in your experience and in your 30 day plan, how you see people making that leap. And I'm imagining, you know, there, there might be some day where, you know, I've gone back to the way I was mm-hmm. conceivably and I'll be like eating my words here, but it doesn't feel like it right now. It feels it feels like something has shifted, like I've moved from driving from the back seat to the front seat where it's natural and I have my hands on all the right levers and wheel, wheels and pedals. Um, but talk about, for you know, as, as you as a teacher now reaching out to a lot of people that you're never going to meet with this book, what's your process for helping people move from mindless eating, mindless living to what you call mindfulness. Let me ask you first, what you said nine days, what yeah. was there something, does this coincide with a practice that you're doing that you noticed a shift nine days ago? Um, I think the practice shift was maybe a month ago and this was sort of a lagging indicator. Um, I, I stopped doing breath meditation and started doing um, a meditation guided by a, a guy named Adyashanti, uh-huh. um, who, whose entire instructions are uh, allow everything to be as it is. Mm-hmm. So instead of any sort of mental manipulation, like bringing, like telling my mind what to do, I would do it for a minute. You know, pay attention to your butt in the chair. Pay attention to do a little body scan, which you which you write about. Uh, very beautifully and helpfully in the book. And then from there, instead of, okay, count my breaths or focus on the in and out of the breath, I would just allow everything to be as it was, mm-hmm. which means to be present with whatever. And if my if, if I started thinking thoughts, the goal was to just observe the thoughts mm-hmm. and not try to stop them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, was, that tool over maybe two or three weeks was a breakthrough for me because now, you know, I described like sitting down to eat and it being this, 
you know, this Iron Man competition of will to like focus on the chewing and focus on, and then like the food going down was kind of slimy. I'd never noticed it before when you chew a lot, <laughs> like instead, like all of a sudden this kindness to myself. And as you put it to my experience in the moment, like I wasn't trying to do anything superhuman. I was just doing the most natural thing there was. And I, I feel like that was the thing that allowed me to then open it up into the realm of food. All right. And let me ask you, and this is going to be directly pertinent to your question about me, about how I bring people into creating the kind of experience that um, has been for me. The way you describe this practice is not in conflict with the, the practice that I am teaching. You said allow everything to be as it is. That's what uh, Vipassana meditation is. Everything, the idea is to see the reality of things as they are. And you also said thoughts, notice that they're there and not try to stop them. And what is it your, what do you, what is your instruction as these thoughts come up, which they always do? That's the human condition. What is the process that your, your teacher is telling you for that? Right. Well, it's, it's not to resist them or manipulate experience in any way. So well, you're having thoughts. Watch, your, watch, watch yourself have the thoughts. Yes. Like the, the, the idea is that there's some part of us that is more intimate to ourselves than our thoughts, right? Because if we can have a body, but we're not the body. Yeah. We can have thoughts, but we're not the thoughts because there's something aware of the thoughts. Well, so yes. And this it's, is what happens. the idea of... Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Well, this is what is what's taught in my process too through the 30 days. The idea is not to try to stop thoughts or or let yourself identify with them being caught up with them. And this is what we typically do. The thought of something that happened yesterday that's going to happen tomorrow or happened this morning, it occurs to us. It might have some kind of it always has an emotional response, whether strong or not, or happy or sad. It doesn't that's not the point. But then the idea is our habit is to run with the thought and replay the story and get caught up in the story. The process as I teach it in the book, and I, that's why I'm trying to understand more about what your process is too, is thoughts are going to come on their own. We cannot stop them. We cannot tell them to go away. The more we push them and try to not may, not let them happen, the st more of a pull they get on us. The idea is to become aware that they are there and to let them go in a way that means you don't get caught up in the story. So you kind of disidentify with them. They don't become your object of now you're lost in that and you forgot totally that you are present here. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does make sense to my to my experience. Yeah, and, so um, I think we have a lot, mostly commonalities here, and it may be the vernacular. And I also want to go back. You talked about counting the breaths, and this is specifically what I don't do in the instruction the instruction is when you're you start with and I'll go back into the pragmatic steps of it. Let me finish this thought at first and we'll go through how to connect this with people's experience. Um, counting breaths or doing those kinds of things starts to get you into a mental activity around them. It's almost like a mantra. One, two, three. That's 
start to remove you from actual the feeling of the breath, which is what we want here with this form of meditation to get you started. From there, as the weeks, days and weeks progress, you open those up to sensations in your in your body. You open them up to, to your emotional experience. And then beyond that is also a mental activity, which you start to talk about, which can be a little bit more complex if you're not really more grounded in how to not necessarily get lost in the story. So that would be another chapter. If I had another week in the book, I might, you know, go on with ex- exploring that. But the commonality is you don't try to control thoughts. You don't try to make them not exist. You seek to be able to disidentify with them, acknowledge that they're there, get out of your judgment of shouldn't be thinking this, shouldn't be thinking that. Sometimes you'll be sitting there for, and 10 minutes later, you notice that you've been lost in a thought. That's getting carried away in the story, right? (laughs) Happens a lot to all of us. So those are the kind of commonalities. I wanted to really point out that the connections between your experience, which has had a, you've noticed a positive benefit, particularly in your eating behaviors in the last nine days. And that's that's very nice. And uh, if it's uh, you end up having a back, what we call a backslide, well, then you need to be compassionate with yourself about that too. You know, we have so many years of certain habits and reactions going on that those things are going to come up. So the question is, then, how will you navigate? That when it does happen, which is the skills that you get with mindfulness practice. So how do I bring that to people through the course of the book? I did, as I said earlier in our conversation, I put it into a 30-day plan because the point is to start doing these practices. It's dose respondent. Even a few minutes of a day in a day can make a difference. And I didn't want something where someone could get all inspired, read a great plan, and finish the book and think someday I'll get to that. I wanted something people could could really dive into right away. And by the way, I have I'm in the middle of recording audio companions for every of the 30 days, and those will be downloadable for free from my site. So in the book, it tells you where to navigate on the website to get those. And again, the idea is I want people trying this on and doing this practice to see what it can offer them. The way I start is simply with the very basics of position, how do you sit in position? We all assume people might know. We've seen pictures of people meditating. Well, I don't want to take that for granted. And it's nothing special. And it doesn't even, it can be in a chair. It doesn't have to be folded legs on the floor. It just so happens that the traditions that a lot of these practices came from were in in cultures where people sat a lot on the floor. So you don't have to sit on the floor. You can sit in a chair. So I describe that. And I describe the other part of getting started with concentration, which is the first part. For the first week, we just work on concentration. And that's where the breath comes in. And it's not on counting the breath. It's not saying in and out. It's focusing on the feeling of the breath, not picturing the breath. It's on the feeling of it, just as it crosses over and comes into your nose. And the point of focusing on the breath, go ahead. I just I want to say if that it suddenly made me realize like the, there's a huge difference between counting or saying in and out and the experience of the breath at least for me and it sounds like for it's you huge. as well that it's, I think we're we're both very verbal people so that the the word itself becomes the object and we can detach from our bodies as we're concentrating on the word like I can see the words in and out exactly 
or the, exactly. and I could see the numbers like like the you know the um, yellow submarine movie. Well, it's intellectualizing, yes. and the whole idea with okay mindfulness, remember, is to bring your attention to the task, the present moment. And the purpose of the breath in mindfulness meditation practice is because it's taking place in the present moment. You cannot breathe for yesterday. You cannot breathe for tomorrow. It's right here, right now, the feeling of it. If you start counting it, then you're intellectualizing it and it can take you uh, any one of a different place in your brain than actually being present. And believe it or not, as simple as this sounds, as you know, Howard, it's challenging because we're so habituated to running up with thoughts as they occur to us and finding ourselves 10 minutes later that we were often one thing led to another, like a bad Google search, you know, it's just like one thing leads to another. So we focus on the breath and that's for the first week. And we're like, you know, you know this because you've got the book day one, one minute. And I just stick with the position of sitting on the chair of the floor, just one minute. I want it to be really undaunting. I want it to be like, well, I can look at this for one minute today. And then day two, I add the breath as the anchor point for your concentration. That's the whole point as you start is you learn to concentrate. So this helps you hold steady, help you practice holding steady just as you, well, you do yoga, right? You're familiar with yoga practice? Yeah. Well, isn't the idea of, let's say you get into a, a yoga posture and maybe it's a little challenging and what do you do with that? Even though your body wants to move and you say, and you're like, you kind of try to hold steady, right, through the time. And this is why coming out of yoga class can be so nice because you've practiced holding steady and keeping your concentration on what exactly is at hand. So that's why yoga is so good for being a mindful movement. Right. And it's, it's always clear when I come out of one of those poses that it wasn't the body that was the limiting factor. That's right. right? It's it, was always the converse, it was always the conversation about this pose. <laughs> That's so good. Yes, our mind always finds a way of finding these these things very interesting. Uh, so that's then day three is the is the intention. What is your intention when you when you're doing your practice? And it, like maybe it simply means today I'm going to sit for three minutes and I'm going to return my attention to the point of concentration with kindness and equanimity. And that's your intention. That's all it is and then day four is four minutes and I add the element of remindfulness which means every time you become aware that you're lost in thought you've remembered you've already become more mindful and you return your your attention to the anchor point of concentration and continue so I really try to set it up simply one full day is devoted to each of these and as you know each day is also Several days are backed up with research information about mindfulness practice and how it's being used um, in hospitals and care facilities uh, all over the country, thousands of locations using this as a way to not formally stress and anxiety management, but also um, addictions and all of that kind of stuff. So I put that all throughout the book to add reinforcement right. of science and then also personal connection, personal story, or those people that I have worked with. So you kind of get inspiration and information at the same time, but always bring it back to the practice. And also, as the days go on, how this can then apply to your life outside of formal practice. And I think that formal practice 
which is why I focus on it every day in the book, for me was critical for making these changes. Intellectually knowing that some much of the misery in my life is from reactivity or inability to be present with disquieting states, as I call it, you know, discomfort, doesn't help me. What I need is a tool that's going to be not only know that, but also find a new way to navigate it. So I can start to unravel that reactivity that's causing so many problems for us in our lives. Right. And I also want to make a point before we go on, and I, I talk about this at length in the Mindful Vegan too, is it's not just food and eating. That just That's just the canary in my coal mine. For some people, this uh, undersettling of this feelings of anxiety or any disquieting states will be played out in maybe a compulsion to be overproductive at work or maybe dive so hard into an exercise program that, you know, that's become your refuge. That's that's all you think about. Or maybe some kind of a substance abuse of another kind. And this is not this is not to say that productivity is bad, but we all know people who kind of cross the line and all they they just become a workaholic and at the expense of they're not happy about it. You just know they're being overproductive. So I really want to make it clear. That's why this this uh, process, as I presented in the Mindful Vegan, is not just for those of us with the eating as where these problems show up, but we all have our own way of just playing out these kind of disquieting states. Right. So I wanted to, before we go, um, touch on two particular days worth of topics, or maybe three, three days and two topics. Um, so one of them is the feeling that we can get when we are eating our vegan food and we're surrounded by people who are eating other food or we go to the supermarket or like this morning I was running and I felt like listening to a novel. So I was listening to a, uh, a Nora Roberts book in which the main character is this 16-year-old girl who's been brought up to be perfect. And like one of her epiphany moments is when somebody offers her bacon and eggs and she takes it. And, she, and this is like a, you know, like a coming of age, very positive moment for her in her life. And I'm like, oh, f you know, <laughs> F this. Like you talk, you, you do t talk about the challenges that vegans face in navigating skillfully as vegans, as plant-based advocates in the world, because God knows we can turn people off twice as quickly as we can turn them, turn them on when we are, um, you know, reactive and judgy. Exactly. So the question is, how does it help you or? Well, what, yeah, well, say, say something about that aspect of being mindful in your eating mm. uh, around yeah. around skillfully yeah. navigating conversation. All right. Yeah, it's it can be a tough one, but it, this is where reactivity for vegans can really show up because we all know that feeling when we sit down and someone next to us is just obviously no consciousness about what or who is on their plate and just plowing in whether or not the a conversation goes around veganism or not. And I bring it back to, first, what is the best way to, since we all have advocacy in our heart, some people are more strident with activism, but we all feel so much pain around unconscious eating that we really want to let people know there's another way to look at this. So with that urgency in mind, how many of us 
have gone counter to something we're habituated to by someone who's come up with us and done shame or blame in our face. I can't think of anything that's really <laughs> changed any of my behaviors. And I apply that to veganism as well. If we are um, pushing in someone's face about what's wrong about what they are doing. And I have that whole chapter in The Mindful Vegan about this, about our conditioned responses and how people will defend their, what they've been doing for a long time. They don't want to look um, wrong or stupid or none of us does. So you have to think of all those things are things to consider. So practically, how does that play out? This is where learning to be able to be present with what's happening in your body is very helpful to me because I can sense when there is tension or discomfort. And this goes back directly to that meal with my dad. That's a good thing we can reflect on. Because even though the issue with the table wasn't veganism, I still had long-time reactivity to my father and who he was which could be the same around being at a table with people who are eating whatever. Does that make sense? Yep. So the best way to connect and to be able to be present with that kind of thing is, and to pause and probably be the biggest influence on another person is if they have a good experience of being around you. And if you are in a place where you feeling more at ease and more, more confident in the way you were eating and less connected with an attack mode, that is what conveys more of a pleasant experience for you. And it doesn't mean you're accepting of their behavior, but we have to understand that we're not in the place that it's our, our place to take whatever strategy we might want to use to basically attack someone else. And the nice thing about this, Howard, is when you become, it brings you more into the present moment. It brings you more into listening to the other person, just like I listened to my dad, just like he was, what if this were a person I didn't know? You can connect with that person on other areas of their life or other things that might be going on that you have a commonality, which is an important kind of way of sharing ground before anything else might come up, even if it does or doesn't. But you open up your heart in a different play way to this other person. And this allows for a greater sense of ease and well-being in any situation. So let me pause and see where you'd like to direct that. I want to leave that right where it is because my my thought was like you know, that can that can apply to our country's fractured political oh, dialogue right yeah. now to to relate to everything that we want we feel like when we're when we're part of an advocacy community there's this you know systemic pressure to be the most vigilant the most outspoken the least um, you know giving the least ground. The, and, you know, we, it was a, there was a headline today about, you know, Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi being shouted down by constituents. And I, I haven't paid much attention to the article yet to know what the issues were. But, you know, in my heart, I have a sense that shouting down is not a, a coalition building strategy. Um, and so to, to, it almost feels like a betrayal in some case, mm. to to engage with this person as a mm -hmm. human being instead of just telling them how you think about them. Yeah, well, this is where compassion comes into play. 
And we think, uh, I, I, how can I be a compassionate person sitting here when this person next to me is diving into a big slab of whatever? That's that's the task, is how do I uncover that natural capacity I have for being a kind and compassionate person, which is, it's not, you know, many people, especially vegans will think, well, that's kind of signing it over. It's giving it up. It's, if I don't say something, I'm, it's saying I'm condoning what they're doing. But in actuality, the best difference you can make in another's life is by developing your own peace and equanimity. And you must be active granted but there's also a time and place for every conversation and every comment and you learned more to be in connect in touch with your intuition about those things than when you are not practicing mindfulness because it's so easy to get caught up in the the horrors of the animal industry and everything that's wrong that's like you brought up the politics that we just want to go on that level but i think a good wrap for this this part of the conversation too is, you know, that I have Melanie Joy in the book and Melanie Joy, for those listening, wrote the, the book, Why We Love Dogs and Eat Cows and Wear Pigs, which the title kind of gives away the entire, <laughs> the entire message is that we have this dichotomy between how we approach different animals for different things. And under that is a human relationship with animals that is either more conscious or very unconscious. And uh, Melanie actually had just written a new book called Beyond Beliefs that dives into this also a little bit more. And she recommends The Mindful Vegan in her book. She, she added that she was just finishing the book when she got mine to review. And she thinks that mindfulness is such an important practice, as you can see from her quotes in the book, that she refers to my book within hers. And she's also referring to it at her SIVA trainings, which is her vegan advocacy trainings for people who are in the field, because her message is we need to not only have compassion fatigue skills, which is dealing with that fatigue that comes from being a compassionate person in the vegan marketplace or the, the, you know, the, the vegan approach to world, as we've just been discussing, and that by having that place of presence and some degree of mastery over how you react and respond to other people is so important for our own well-being and very important for our way of communicating, find appropriate ways of speech, and for taking it into advocacy and activism. Right. And she's got some pretty good activist chops. So it's not like you'd look at her and go, oh, she's, she's kind of wishy-washy on the, on the topic. She's, yeah, she's really uh, quite the person. And I don't know if you've heard Melanie speak. I'm sure you've done, read some I heard, of her I heard work. Her, I heard her last month at Plant Stock, yeah. Oh, that's right. She was there. She was visiting for a while. She has a way of putting these things together that's so common sense. It's like, well, why didn't I think of that? And if we could only all be half as articulate as she, I'm in. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I wanted to, we're, we're, we're over our uh, allotted time, although time is an illusion. Um, but I wanted to um, close the loop on, on something you, you teased me with at the beginning, which is to uh, your opinions on disordered eating. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, I guess, you know, on addiction and the scales. So yeah. uh, I don't even I don't even know what to ask other than, you know, hold forth to tell me okay. what you think. Yeah, I'll do a quick because that could be like another two hour podcast. Uh, long ago, when all this kind of started with me and I had problems, I'm talking about having problems with food and eating my body and overeating and then dieting and overeating and all that. And I was sure I was addicted to food, definitely addicted to sweets. I, th- I consider myself a sweetaholic. I think I thought I made up that word. I don't know if it's been used anywhere else, but I just, I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a while. I tried the 12 step thing and none of this really, it all always felt like it was something that was being imposed from without, kind of like has come up early in our conversation, like trying to micromanage everything and getting into what's happening in your head. And I shouldn't feel this way. And, um, you know, I'm an addict, so I have to turn it over. That didn't help me. I just, I still, (laughs) it just didn't work for me. And when I became acquainted with, very familiar with the with the energy behind overeating being driven by undereating, the whole thing fell into place. Once I decided to give up dieting as I knew it, I decided to abandon micromanaging my plate with food portions, calories, meal, you know, exactly what's going to happen when which were all ways of artificially managing my what my food and eating. I turned this over with along with the practice of mindfulness which connects you more to your natural hunger and fullness signals. I abandoned that so that I could simply become a body managed eater instead of managing through my brain. And once I stopped trying to cut back, trying to undereat, trying to lose weight basically and all that that brings along with it because I had so much bounce around with my weight with that and I was satisfying my hunger signals every day. All that binge eating, uh, uh, all those cravings, that think feeling that I was a food addict, that fell away because I was simply meeting my body's needs for hunger instead of trying to cut back and lose a few. Most people who I notice who are thinking that they're certainly, they're an addict or they're a, they're addicted to food or they're an emotional overeater, these people have a history somewhat like mine, a long and colorful cutting back, go on a diet, overeat for a while, go on a diet. In other words, they never really got completely got out of that feast or famine cycle. Does that make sense? Yep. So what happens is your primary need for survival is food. Okay, you can say water, but we're not going to, I don't want to get that technical. We all need food to survive. And if we are chronically under eating or even strictly under eating, which many diets do, cutting, cutting your calories severely, over a period of weeks, days, even hours, as hunger presents itself, and we try to use willpower to just muscle on through and stick to this diet, that is going to be usurped by our body's need for survival. It's going to hook our survival instinct 
and cause us to eat and cause us to desire to eat all probably the wrong foods because those are the ones, high fat, high sugar, high taste foods are the ones best designed for us to not only manufacture and store body fat, but to be reluctant to give up any excess stores we have. So when you take, that's, that's putting the body in a famine environment. It's survival. You, you got a good body. It just means that it wants to survive. It's not like a character flaw or something like that. So if you move your body to a well-fed environment, that means it's going to give up its need to be compelled to eat whatever is available or to seek out those foods that historically have given us so much pleasure and promptly packed on a lot of weight easily too. So the way you bring yourself into a well-fed environment is to tune into your hunger and fullness signals. And this is another place when I decided I was going to drop, let go of that and follow the mindfulness path, the mind or follow the hunger and fullness signals. That is the point at which following a mindfulness practice became critical for me because the fear of giving up all those controls and turning this over to being connected to my body signals was enormous. It's really hard to do. For those of us who've been dieting for years, can you imagine? Just let go of it all. There's a big relief, but the reality of it is kind of scary. So they came together for me, and that's why I believe that many people who think, just from my own experience, that they're a food addict, an emotional eater, that once they start to make this shift, those tendencies are relieved. Beautiful. That's all I got for now. Okay. Um, well, that was a total pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah. The book, the book comes out when I think we're going to, we're going to try to time this podcast oh, release to, yeah, the, October, to the book really. Yeah. October 10th is official release day, but going up to that, since I'm doing the four day again, to get people started, I'm doing a mindful vegan virtual retreat, which is like a bonus gift for everyone who purchased before official relief. So official official relief, did you hear that? Official release. (laughs) So Uh what I'm going to do is it's going to start about the week of October. um, I think it's October 19th. It's a Thursday after, a couple weeks after release, where I'll take just a four-day weekend and just a half hour on Thursday on the phone. I'll send everybody the, the phone number and the webcast number. Do a little introduction, answer some questions, and then kind of make the commit. Let's go through the first four days together. And then day four, I'll be on again to answer questions and encourage along the way. Just a little bit, but enough to really connect with people in real time. And I'll record it for those who can't be there, of course. But um, that's kind of a bonus gift for pre-order. So that's kind of nice. We can put that link in your notes, too. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Well, Lanny Mulrath again coming through. Uh, now that you've got your three pillars, I don't know if you're going <laughs> to dive deeper, stop writing books, re- make new pillars. Uh, well, um, right now I'm focused on let's bring our attention to getting this into as many hearts and hands as possible. Because as you know from our last hour, this has been so huge, a, a cha- life changer for me. 
Right. And yeah, and good 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 job sticking with the present as I as I tried to tempt <laughs> you into into future thinking. So, Lanny, thanks again for for being such a friend of the podcast, for agreeing to come on and and share your wisdom. My pleasure. And the book is called The Mindful Vegan: A 30-Day Plan for Finding Health, Balance, Peace, and Happiness. The subtitle on my book is Advanced Review Copy. <laughs> <laughs> and the author is Lanny Mulerat. So thank you again so thank much. Thank you, Harold. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 230. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 229 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you can sign up and also get that Oatmeal Project report at plantyourself.com slash oatmeal. That's all lowercase. Apparently, there was a glitch with the form for the last couple of weeks that I just discovered. And so if you tried to get it, you failed. Or I should say, I failed you. That glitch has been fixed, so if you haven't yet gotten the Oatmeal Project Report, which is how to handle basically one-third of your plant-based eating through oatmeal for breakfast, you can grab it again at plantyourself.com slash oatmeal. In addition to that iTunes review, which is so important, and by the way, I haven't gotten a new one since August 31st, so uh, somebody please step up. Um, you can also share this in other episodes on social media. You can become a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution at either patreon.com slash plant yourself or just go to plantyourself.com and look for the Patreon button on the right sidebar. I've got to announce a new podcast by my friend Glenn Murphy, who is my martial arts instructor and also a world expert on stress and stress proofing. He's a two-time guest on the podcast. And he has just launched his own podcast on iTunes called Sistema for Life. Sistema is the martial art that we train. And yeah, it's got a lot of stuff about the martial art itself, but really is a look at the principles of movement, of balance, of tension and relaxation, of posture, of mental clarity and focus, of fearlessness and fear. It really is for life. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, I highly recommend that you check it out. He's a great guy, and he's talking to some of the most accomplished, not only martial artists, but human beings that I've ever had the pleasure to know. So again, if you just go to iTunes and search for Sistema, which is S-Y-S-T-E-M-A for life, you should find it and let me know what you think. In garden news, okay, we're getting great greens now. We're getting enough greens for a full Vitamix of green smoothie every day. And soon I'm hoping it's going to be up to two Vitamixes of green smoothies so we can stop relying on Costco uh, greens altogether. And in running news, I'm about a week out from my 50K and I'm feeling good. And I've been tapering, but also the weather's gotten cold. So I've gotten back to running shirtless. So people point at me when they drive by in their cars. And that's helped me speed up a bit, not having the uh, warm weather. So we'll see. That's uh, Saturday the 14th is my 50K, and I will report back, assuming I survive it. Okay, now comes my favorite part, the thanksy bits. Thanks, of course, to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his glorious, soulful Korah music.
And last and most, thanks also to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. You know who you are, I know who you are, and by now listeners know who you are, but I still love saying your names. And here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jan Polinovsky, David Isaac, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Connie Peck, Michelle Andrew, Dozina, Julianne Rollins, Dolan Dolnick, Sarah Durskis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Bedham, Gillis, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Vanderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Wara, Becky Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, <gasps> Val Lineman rhymes with cinnamon. Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry Ars, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Hal- Karen Burry, Heller Morgan, Ashley Carker, and D- Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie-, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Ridledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, and Linda Ayat, which rhymes with Ayat. For your generous support of the podcast, that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.